Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Indeed. And joining us in the studio today, it is The Times' very own Alison Rudd. Coming up, we'll look back on an historic afternoon for VAR at Selhurst Park and discuss life without Kane for Tottenham. But first to Anfield. The front page of the game today reads Teenage Kicks as 18-year-old Curtis Jones settles the Merseyside derby with a stunning goal to send Liverpool through to the fourth round of the FA Cup. He becomes the youngest scorer in a Merseyside derby since Robbie Fowler in March 1994. And after the game, Jones talked about his frustrations of being in and out of this all-conquering Liverpool side despite his very young age. Alison, what do we make of Curtis Jones then and his performance? What I like most, and there's a long list of things I like, (laughs) but what I like most was his attitude. Mm. You sort of expect, these stories are not unknown, that teams have to rotate or maybe have injury crises and in the cup it happens all the time. Um, You see players you've not seen before for your clubs. They come through and it's, a, it's you know, for all that people moan about the FA Cup not being taken seriously, it is a chance to see who might be the starlets of your of your club. And normally, if they play reasonably well or even score, there's a sort of a level of gratitude and please, they took their chance and there's a sort of humility. And Curtis was, he was just so honest about how it had felt waiting for the opportunity to shine and he let you know he knew he could do it it was this is he was telling the world this was no fluke i have been chomping at the bit i've been letting people know politely i am ready i am ready it's been frustrating knowing i'm good enough i can go out there and do it it's and i got a real picture of how it must be to be an academy graduate or a young player at, at anfield at the moment that you're you're all taught what the system is what's expected of you you know you're part of a team that's doing wonderful things so you're going to have to be very patient 
But as long as you take on board every single principle, and that's what they did to a player, they played like proper good imitations of the real thing. They were they were pressing and harrying and focused. If you and you can do all that, and you can still have the confidence to have to show off your ability with that beautiful finish. I just think that speaks volumes for what Klopp has built at the club. It's very, it's all very well saying, oh, they might go on to have a, a dynasty and Klopp could rival Shankly or Paisley in the affections of Liverpool fans. But we don't know, do we? But then you see something like that and you think, golly, he's, he's, it's, it's trickled right the way through the team. I was so impressed. Gregor, do you echo those sentiments? Yeah, I mean... He... It's the confidence that stands mm. out the most, and um, and he wasn't alone in that either. I thought Nico Williams, the the right back, was fantastic. He's so dynamic. The crosses he was whipping into the box, like and he had a he had a great strike in the first half as well. Uh, stung Pickford's hands with it, um, and Harvey Elliott. He's you know he's only sixteen, and he's although they've they brought him in from Fulham. He's obviously got a bit of swagger about him too. You see, when he was coming off the pitch, and he gave he gave Klopp a wink. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I did all right there, thanks. And you could see Klopp kind of just smiling, kind of look at him, going, "Wow," <laughs> you know. I think he was even blown away a little bit by the kind of. He sounded it, didn't you'll he? See, yeah. You'll see them in training every day, and it, and you'll know their ability, and they'll know it. That's that's where his confidence comes from. He's training with them every day, and he's obviously thinking, well, yeah, "I'm playing." With some of the best players in the world here, I'm not. I don't feel out of place. So that's why. That's where his confidence comes from. Um, but you could see even Klopp was kind of thinking, "Yeah, we've got we've got some stars of the future." Yeah, and that is what is so exciting for Liverpool fans, I guess, Alison, knowing and seeing the products that are coming through more and more. Yeah, the, I I think it was also a bit of a surprise because of what happened when Klopp played an utterly B team when he was off winning the Club World Cup and he Klopp wasn't there to oversee the youngsters he left behind to play against Villa so he you sort of thought well could the same thing happen you look at the Everton team it is as strong as it could be on paper it did look like it there might be some element of a repeat performance of, of this is what happens when Liverpool are focused on something else you know, I, I I suspect a lot of people there at Anfield were surprised at just how well it, it it turned out. I think we must not forget Everton, although there was equal possession in the first half. Everton did create quite a lot of chances. It wasn't. It was more the second half that you could say it worked properly. It could have gone badly wrong, couldn't it? If Everton had taken some of their really good chances, but it almost you know, like a lot of the cup stories feel like they're scripted to me. You know, why was I at Crystal Palace? Because you kind of think, well, bearing everything in mind, there's probably going to be an upset there. Why do the cameras go to a certain place? You weigh it all up. You think there's going to be an upset. It did feel like it might be a step too far to expect a lot of changed players, a lot of youngsters to cope with a full-strength Everton team under a new manager. And the fact that they withstood the early pressure from Everton and then found their stride and became better as the game went on is 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 really quite remarkable mm. very I th- heartening i think as well that the you know obviously a lot of focus has been on the young players but someone like adam lalana who you know i've thought his career at liverpool is really over he's had a long time out with injury and he's come back he's been he's been really important player for them recently and and Keita came in and he's, i know he's injured again he's been brilliant ox came back to full fitness they have got a really 
pretty formidable squad. You know, we talked about all these games they've had over the last month or six weeks. They've just come through. They've just sailed through it really. So, yeah, I mean, people, you you can quickly think at this sort of time, yeah, this could be a dynasty. Um, but the main thing, the main thing, there's so much love towards Liverpool just now and how they're doing everything right and recruitment and you know the academy as we've seen. But it's all it's all because of Klopp and his personality. There's no team in European football who reflects the man in the dugout quite in the same way as Liverpool. Just a final point then on, on these youngsters, and, and maybe it is down, or, or, or Alison, maybe you can tell me, is it down to Everton's disappointing second-half performance that, that Liverpool players came to the fore in the end? How, how did they, those youngsters in particular, not crumble in what was a huge game? Well, I, I, I have to echo Gregor. It will have been a remarkable half-time team talk where Klopp would have told them all the reasons why they had the edge over Everton, including the fact they were, what, on average five years younger? Yeah. And they looked it, they exploited that pace, that freshness. As a team, they looked really fast and at it, mentally quicker, more alert. And I think that probably blew away Everton. They might have been expected. They probably had a team tool that was more about your class will shine through. They're going to be a bit, you know, a bit disappointed with how they've conceded those chances. And it it was just the it was just the marrying of those two effects. Probably probably was the crux of it is if you've got if you've got what looks like a negative, which is inexperience, and you can turn that into the positive, you're away, aren't you? And I suspect that's what Klopp did. Mm. There was a negative though to that game, and that is uh, the injury for James Milner, forced to limp off just nine minutes into that uh, third round clash. And it leaves Klopp with little options at left back, as although first choice Andy Robertson is available, there is no recognised backup. Such is the lack of options to fill in at, in at uh, left back. Milner was replaced by the 19-year-old Yasser Larucci, who made his Reds debut in the Merseyside derby then. And the Reds headed into the game, welcoming the likes of Brewster and Oxlade Chamberlain back into the fold. Uh, but Milner's setback is, is set to leave the runaway Premier League leaders with up to seven players sidelines. Should Liverpool fans then be concerned at the number of injuries, Alison? Well, you you have to be, on the one hand. But I, I, we've just been waxing lyrical about what depth <laughs> yes. they've got, so. <laughs> I don't think the crisis is going to be so bad that Klopp feels he has to make as many changes as he did to the FA Cup in the league ever. He's the other... The other <laughs> I don't want this to sound like we're just turning him into some sort of deity. But the other thing that Klopp is very good at is juggling positions on the pitch. The The way he's... T- he's turned James Milner into Superman. He can play... <laughs> he can play anywhere. And that... I don't think James Milner would have played anywhere under anybody else because... It's just the way Klopp tells players they they can do that. He his enthusiasm is infectious. If you know, if he told me I could speak French, I can't. But if Klopp told me I could, I think I would. I think I'd be able to do it. It would just come you to you. It. It, would just, go. it would just my brain, that little part of my brain that thinks it might have known French when I was eleven, would spring into action and I'd be able to do it. So I'm not. I'll miss James Milner and hope he's back soon because uh, it's not just it's not just the way he plays. It's just I just think he's a fantastic influence on the team. There's something about even when he's just on the bench, knowing it's sort of like with Milner, you know, it doesn't matter what position you light on. James Milner can fill it, fill it. But I do feel that that approach 
can work with whoever he's got left for Klopp. Whoever he has, if he has to make an, a real emergency substitution uh, at fullback one day, whoever he puts there will feel they can do it extremely well, and that means they will. Well, I read that uh, Larucci actually arrived as a right winger, so he's already, he's, transferred <laughs> he's already done it. He's already done it. Sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> that does sum up Jurgen Klopp, doesn't it? Well, Henry Winter was at Anfield uh, and in the game today, he writes, Klopp's Colts highlight golf facing Ancelotti. He goes on to remind Everton fans of Bill Shankly's infamous words that there are only two teams on Merseyside, Liverpool and Liverpool's reserves. Maybe a touch harsh on Everton, but Gregor, how much of an opportunity missed was this for Carlo Ancelotti's side? Well, yeah, obviously a, a major opportunity because they'll never face... Very li- unlikely to face a, a more weakened Liverpool side. But I think Ancelotti even said afterwards, the team that Liverpool put out, it wouldn't have affected the way he approached the game. And he's one manager who's actually gotten, uh, gotten beyond Klopp when he was manager of Napoli in the last year or so. Um, I don't think, I think they, they would go and set up in the same way and be fairly sort of conservative in their approach and, and look to hit them on the break. Because as was said, Liverpool, no matter who they put out, they know the principles of play. They hunt in packs and try and play out of pressure. So um, I think it just highlighted that Everton have... Had, they've signed so many players who've disappointed, really. And, you know, they've, they've spent so much money and it's been done in, in a fairly sort of cat-candid way, I think. You know, people were... At half-time, the, uh, people were saying Theo Walcott had been a real danger down the right in the second half. He was absolutely woeful. And that kind of that was like a his career in a microcosm. It was, he, <laughs> I don't know why anyone's surprised. He's thirty years old and he's been swinging from from being looking like someone who's who should be playing for England to someone who shouldn't be on a on a pitch in a Premier League team. Kilfi Sigurdsson, you know, he cost as, as much as Liverpool's entire starting eleven, and as he's been a flop. I think we can say that now. He's been. No, I think he's been a flop. And Schneiderlin. Schneiderlin's another one. I think there's just too many people who they've spent a lot of money on it, kind of getting towards their thirties or the you know it's probably the last big contract, and you know there's not there's just an incoherent approach to the way Everton has been run a long way, a long time, and that might be changing now. And Ancelotti's obviously a, a good manager, and he'll look to remedy that in, in January. He said that after the match, we've got to sign some players. So I think it probably just showed where Everton are really. I mean, you're right, he did say after the match that uh, they're going to have to dip into the transfer market, but where on earth do they start by strengthening and, and changing this side, Alison? Well, it's... Uh, they 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 do have some good players. Those uh, people are uh, just named are good the players. People, exactly, you just named some really good players, and I think the reason it's not working is they've best been, been bought. In the past. Well, partly, maybe, yes, partly, but also they've been bought with a view to them individually solving a problem as opposed to them being bought to fit into a, yeah. a system and a strong philosophy. And Gilfie Sigurdsson, I'll, I'll, I'll pick on him because I'm a huge admirer of his. He, he's not been used properly and he's in the wrong sort of team at the moment. And you pay that much money for a player like that who can be match-winning on a regular basis, single-handedly saved Swansea from relegation. I won't have that argued with. He did. <laughs> and he's uh, when he's playing well, he's superbly elegant. And even, even against Liverpool on Sunday, some of the 
balls he delivered were inch perfect and just not just not finished and then he drifts out of drifts out of the match but you if you know what you're if you buy him knowing what you want from him properly and you I think you should build a team around him. So how do you get the best out of him? You build Sigurdsson. a team around the Gylfie Sigurdsson. Right. What's the point of spending 50 million quid on a player who is elegant and has the eye for the perfect ball and the added bonus of, of covering a lot of ground? He's not, he's not, a, he's not one of those people who, who sort of sits back and gazes at his pass and thinks, wasn't that lovely? He, he really does track around the pitch. He ran more than um, regularly, had the top stats in the Premier League when he was at Swansea for ground covered. So he's he's like the perfect Premier League player. But they have not at Everton ever played him like that. They've never they've never it's as if Everton feel they're too big a club to think they need a Gilfie Sigurdsson to build a team around because they saw that that's what happened at Swansea and they're not relegation candidates. So why would we do that? It's, it's no there's no embarrassment in being a club that aims to be a top 6 club thinking aren't we lucky? We've got Gilfie Sigurdsson. Let's build it around him. And it's not built around him. He's meant to slot in to a, a ha- I have to say, a rather haphazard system, Everton. It's been haphazard for quite a long time. And Ancelotti is a good manager, and I hope he does sort it out. But the idea that he would now want to sideline players like Sigurdsson and then buy in more quality doesn't make any sense at all. Work out the qualities of what you've got and make the system work for it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wayne Rooney helped Derby cause an upset at Crystal Palace to reach the FA Cup fourth round on an afternoon. But guess what? The pitch side monitor was used for the first time in England this season. The referee, Michael Oliver, watched a replay of an incident between Luka Milivojevic and Tom Huddleston and overruled his original decision of a yellow card to send off the Palace man midway through the second half. So a few small steps for Michael Oliver, but surely one giant leap for VAR. Alison, you were there. It's, it's massive, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> you're not sure no well it in isolation it worked because i and i i have to admit it worked because one of my one of my many gripes against far is the referee on the pitch has the feel smells pace vibe of a match and he's best placed to know if something is a red card offense or not so if the referee, in this case Michael Oliver, generally considered a very good referee, feels that he saw it a certain way and there's someone in his ear saying, we're not 
we think we, we think you might have missed something, but you might decide that it was nothing given the context or mm. maybe our angle's just slightly weird. I mean, you were there. You were there, Michael. But that didn't What's happen. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? It, it, it makes perfect sense for him to think, well, if they're telling me I might have missed something, I, I am here. I am aware of how that, that whole thing unfolded. I will go and look at it again. I want to be in control of what happens here. I don't want someone in a studio telling me I should send someone off because I've got a chance to see for myself what I might have missed. I like the fact I like the fact that Michael Oliver wanted to take control of it eventually and that he did go to the monitor and I disagree with what he saw. I don't I if I'd been him I'd have thought really really I think I probably got it right booking them both it was all a bit pathetic. But he decided there was a movement towards a headbutt that was enough for him so he sent he sent Luca off. I but I do I do think that feels more real in terms of assistance in replays than it that than that red card being delivered by a disembodied voice miles away. You disagree I can tell from No 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 I think you just kind of proved the virtue of it and that it's a subjective decision and it's much better it feels much better that the, the man who's refereeing the pitch who's standing in the middle of the game is the man who takes that rather than some distant body so mm-hmm. uh, you know I've said many times VAR sort of opens up a whole new layer of subjectivity but I feel that if, when decisions are like that and they're, they're subjective that it feels a lot better for the fans in the stadium although as I mentioned earlier there was some guy running, running across in the background, ready to abuse him for coming, just looking at, <laughs> looking at the screen. Uh, you could see that on TV on the highlights. Um, but I, I just feel that that's that's a lot. That feels a lot kind of better. And I think everyone is more willing to accept that the referee, who would have been taking the decision without VAR, if VAR wasn't in existence, he's he's the same person who's who's taking this decision. So I think it's a good thing, and it has to be done more. And, and I get that, and, and I think it is right that they should use the monitors. But I do sort of understand as well where Alison, you're coming from with that, with the thought that if if a referee's in their ear being told mm, you might want to look at this, they're they're going their their own thoughts are, are going to be persuaded maybe differently. But I thought I think I don't think that happened. I don't think he was told. I don't think there was anyone in his ear saying you should take a look at this. I think he took it upon himself to go and look at us. That's no, it. no, there was a very very long VAR review where Michael Oliver was stood in the middle of the pitch doing nothing. Yeah, well, but, someone, but they, they didn't Park. direct him to go and look at the screen. It's his decision. So that's that, important. It's his though, decision, he, but it, it, that decision is made because, as far as I'm aware, the, the, while I was there, there was a long delay, whilst because you do you do look at a possible red card offence is what comes up on the screen, possible red card check. So there's a there was a long already a very long wait while David Coote in Stockley Park replayed and replayed and it was quite a long tussle quite a lot of things went on for a long time most people in the stadium assumed the red card was because um Milojovic kicked out yeah. at, at Huddleston mm. and, 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 and and well he did but that isn't why he got the red card no. Michael Oliver said later to Roy Hodgson I gave it for the move towards a headbutt and that phrase in itself means there wasn't actually a headbutt it was a move towards a headbutt and we've seen them not given as red cards as well it, you know it's, it's about interpretation that's fine but it's it wasn't totally it wasn't totally down to Michael Oliver instantly thinking I need to see that again I'll go straight to the monitor and maybe this will be refined if they're going to decide to use the monitor more often because the irony in all this is 
we're talking about it because it's the first time it's been used this season, mainly because the Premier League were really worried that if referees started to rely on monitors, it would hold the game up and make the product less exciting. So they've not, they've been encouraged, not banned, they've been encouraged to not use the monitors. Then we had the backlash from players, managers, fans, the media saying, why aren't they using the monitors? They're getting things wrong, why don't they use the monitors? And so they felt, I suspect there was a general mood put out if you feel join the FA Cup if it's effort, if there's VAR at your ground if you feel it's an appropriate time to use the monitor this might be a good weekend to do it so that's what happened he thought this is a very good opportunity for me to do it but it's it took all took much 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 longer than it had he decided on the spot I'm not 100% sure I've got this right I'm going to go to the monitor because it was a very busy complicated series of mini fouls going on and maybe someone in his ear would have said that's that look you know could have quickly said that looks that look does look quite complicated Michael maybe you want to have another look at that and then he could have run to the monitor and we'd have shaved off four and a half minutes if he'd done it like that but that takes I think that takes season after season of refinement for a referee and the guy in the studio to work in that partnership to get that time down. Well, you mentioned Roy Hodgson. He obviously wasn't happy with what happened in the game. This is what he had to say on Michael Oliver's decision. I thought it was a harsh one. I mean, I, I don't think there was a, a definite headbutt. Uh, I can't perhaps deny that uh, Luger's head moves in, in, in Tom Huddleston's direction, but Tom, I don't think, receives any blows or, or uh, he didn't make anything of it at all really he didn't sort of go down and suggest he'd been headbutted which is to his credit but of course uh, it all depends upon letters of the law and how you want to interpret them and referees are entitled to interpret the letter of the law and as a result uh, the referees explained to me that uh, that's why he sent him off so that's what you confirmed to us Alison that well, it, well, he was sent well, off caution, for the well, intent of yes, headbutting exactly and that's a separate that's a separate issue whether you feel intent to headbutt is a sendable, offable offence, and how do you know he's not just squaring up? I, I, I think it's. I, well, I wouldn't have sent him off. But Roy also said, "Make your minds up, everybody. Do you do you want the referee to be in charge? Do you want Stockley Park to be in charge?" He, he was a bit cross about there being uh, two ways for his player to be punished, if you like. That you know what you've got. First of all, you've got the referee deciding it's a. Yellow card offence. Then you've got Stockley Park deciding that might not be right. And then you've got the referee's ability to look at it again on a replay. Roy's point, but he was cross and maybe, you know, a few hours later he wouldn't have said it. But Roy's point was, what's the point? What's the point of having Stockley Park if the referee's going to look at it again anyway? Make your mind up, he was saying. I think we just need to know what the instances are in which a, a referee will go to the monitor. So, a red card or serious foul play, penalty kicks. I'm not sure what else there is really to, to go for. Offsides, at the moment, although we're not happy with it, is, is not a subjective thing, so yeah. there's no point in him doing that. Um, so when it's, when it's, when it's, a, it's worthwhile and if there's a chance he's missed something or it's a, like a very marginal decision, then it's good having the, the, the referee use it at, at the stadium and could take ownership of it and somebody that the fans and everyone else watching knows made the decision. Absolutely, because also it means there's some consistency within the 90 minutes. Because yeah. if a referee is refereeing a game in a certain style and it 
they're not robots and they do have a style. So some referees do try really hard to keep the game flowing and hope that they can manage the game through chatting to the players and saying, look, I'm letting this go, but can we not do that again and not show too many cards? And they don't want to give away too many kicks. If there's an incident and the guy at Stockley Park is taking a completely different approach to to the match, it's out of kilter with what we've seen. Mm. And it means the player who committed the offence, he's not... He's almost he's almost jumping into a virtual reality where he he didn't he, he wasn't he's not playing in the same match anymore. He's committed a foul that he feels is in the rhythm of the match, and the referee's been playing it in a certain way. And okay, you could say well, that's a bit cynical of him if he thinks he can get away with a bit more because of the referee. But that's the way it goes. But he's been refereed twice. He's being refereed by someone else suddenly, and he hasn't been able to play that referee. Mm. So it makes much more sense for the referee if he's going to send someone off to look at the monitor because then he's still him he's still applying you hope it's hard to but you hope he's still applying his own manner of refereeing during the previous minutes well as we saw at Selhurst Park the AR is in use in this season's FA Cup but only at Premier League grounds where the technology is in place some fans um, believe that it's not fair that it's a competition for everyone so it should be the same rules applied across all grounds where do we all stand on that should be should we be using VAR if not every stadium has it? Of course not. Ridiculous. Mm. <laughs> I think Gregor's going to argue differently. <laughs> no, what, 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 in what way is it fair that um, Tranmere had Mike, Mike? Mike Dean's a big Tranmere fan, isn't he? Yeah. And he 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 went to the club and gave them a special two talks on how to handle VAR to prepare them for it. This this tells you two things: one that a club suddenly entering a game where there's VAR and they haven't had it before are at a disadvantage when they're playing a team that has had it. Because if you remember when VAR was first introduced, a lot of managers were saying, we're we're having to get used to how we tell the players how to play with it Mm. and how to cope when there's a delay and how to respond psychologically to the disappointment of when you've just celebrated a goal and then you find that you had no idea at all it was going to be chalked off. And they've had to address the whole the whole way you absorb VAR into how you run a football team. And if you're having to do that just suddenly in one of the biggest games you'll play all season, because it's the FA Cup if you're the lower division side that never has had VAR before, why you're already disadvantaged because you've got, you know, you're smaller and you have a smaller budget and you've got a rubbishy manager. You you and you've got <laughs> you've got no experience with VAR as well. That just really does stop a giant killing, doesn't it? So so Tranmere, aware of this, let Mike Dean explain, these are the things you, you look out for. Don't get distracted by this. Don't, don't look at the flag. Just letting them know how different it would be, great for Tranmere, but what about the teams who had nobody to come think, in and give them a chat about what to do? That didn't affect the decision to award a penalty, which went in their favour. So, I th- you know, I think it's, it's hard, this, because... It does feel, you know, it, if decisions go a certain way against a, a little team, then they're going to be they're going to be an uproar. Whereas it went in favour for Tranmere when they got the replay, and mm-hmm. they're going to make some money. So it does feel a little bit like if the technology is there, and we're not happy with the technology <laughs> in its current form, but we we know it's not going away, and it's going to improve over time. So if the technology is there, and we're just not going to use it when it's available. Because every game in itself is its own entity. It's not like it being in one ground and not being in another is affecting the other ground. 
It's just if you have the if you have the technology and that and you're able to use it, then why not use it? But there will be some teams possibly that could argue, well, we've had decisions we could have argued could have gone in our favour if we'd had VAR. So we could be in the fourth round, but we don't have it. And therefore, what for me, it, it comes across as a very elitist attitude because it's those teams that can the, afford to have VAR. <laughs> well, it is. Of course it is. We know We're that, unfortunately. We're going to go on to talk about what the, the future of the FA Cup and that uh, yes. be based around a handful of teams. And you're absolutely right. Um, but to me, it just, it does stink of elitism because it, all it is is saying, well, you've been able to, to implement or introduce VAR uh, into your ground um, because you've, we've had X, Y, Z amount of money pumped into it because of we want to have VAR at Premier League grounds. But everyone else has to suffer and hope that the decisions are made correctly by the the on-field referees, which hopefully more often than not are correct. But how can that be fair, that a competition that is meant to be for everyone really only helps certain teams and, and, and grounds with the right decisions being made. Although it helps both the teams that are in, in those grounds. Yeah, so even if it but it's a, still a, a small handful that it's helping. It's not perfect. In an ideal world, you'd have it in every ground or you don't have it at all. I yeah. mean, I've gone on a journey with VAR. There was a stage earlier in the season where I thought, you need to just completely scrap this. But it's not happening. So we need to kind of fine-tune VAR in its, in its operation. But if it's there to use, then use it. It would have been a beautiful opportunity to just revert to football without VAR, wouldn't it? I mean, there is something very retro about the FA Cup anyway. It's supposed to be. Whenever anyone puts together any montage to get you in the mood for the FA Cup, it's always grainy black and white and muddy pitches. <laughs> and that's that would have been lovely, I think, to have had a VAR-free zone on the basis of democracy. Mm. And the fact that if two League Two teams are facing each other, they would... If VAR is being used, but it's not being used at a you know a non-glamour fixture, there 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 will have been a sense of patronising. Well, I was clearly offside, but oh, oh there was no VAR, <laughs> so that's all right, boys. It it did it didn't feel it didn't feel right. You have to be able to sneer at it happening at Anfield and happening. <laughs> you need to be able to sneer across the board. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, you mentioned we're going to talk about the future of the FA Cup. Uh, Nuno Espirito Santo and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer have said they would have been happy for their goalless FA Cup tie to go straight to a penalty shootout instead of adding another game to what is an already crowded fixture schedule. The third round replay at Old Trafford takes place on either the 14th or 15th of January, which will be Wolves' 38th game of the season that began way back in July. United haven't played as many matches, but with a two-legged Carabao Cup semi-final against Manchester City this month, they will play a minimum of 53 games this term and possibly quite a few more, given, like Wolves, they are still in the Europa League. Now, the FA Trophy, the National Cup competition for non-league sides, have the option of playing a single tie to a finish. That is, if both clubs agree in advance, rather than the match going to a replay, although extra time is played before ties go to a penalty, the two clubs can actually decide before kickoff how the first match should end. This option obviously doesn't exist in the FA Cup, but to help those small handful of clubs that are annoyed about their fixture pileup, should we be adopting a similar system? No, the if, they're that, if they're that blooming annoyed about playing so many games, then uh, lose on purpose. I mean, <laughs> seriously. Yes, well... It, you play a lot of matches because you're successful. If Wolves didn't want to be in the Europa League, they could quite easily have solved that by not qualifying for it. They want to be there. 
it's great for the fans, it's great for the club, it's great for reigniting the history of a very fine club. So embrace it. FA Cup, similarly, you... If you if you really don't care that much about its traditions, and I think the replay element of the FA Cup is part of its appeal, actually, it must, it's what makes it different. That replay is like a win sometimes. It feel it's a well, it will have certainly felt windfall, like that for Tranmere. Big Ooh. windfall for a lot of clubs. It also gives a single cup tie a completely different texture. In that in itself is fascinating, isn't it? How the way the way. You have to reorganise if you're a Premier League club and then you're suddenly hosting, having to host the underdogs. What do you do? I mean, do you, do, you, do you completely change your philosophy from the first time you played them or do you feel slightly embarrassed and put out a really strong team? It's fascinating the way a replay will change the texture. And if you really, really are that worried, that worried about what it means to your fixture list, then... You know, just go for it. Go for it big time in the last 15 minutes. And if that means you're exposed on the counter-attack and you lose, then isn't that a win-win for you? Because <laughs> no one can say you weren't trying because you were really going for it. You're either going to win it or you're going to be caught on the break. It's their own fault. It really is their own fault. I have no sympathy at all. I love, I love replays. It's very, very important. And yes, it's annoying for a manager of a big club who's busy because it's... Um, Partially successful. You can't. You can't really say Man United is hugely successful at the moment. But but <laughs> but it, it would be. It would mean. It mean. It would take away so much for the. You know. You go around the fans of the lower division sides, and they they dream of getting a replay at a big ground. They want to travel there. They want to see it. They want to have a look at VAR in action, and the club gets money. But I mean, tell us, Gregor, is this just managers that think this, or do players? also think sometimes, oh, I don't want this replay. Maybe the elite players. I was never an elite player. I need to be completely honest about that. So, although I suppose if I, you know, if I was playing for a championship club and we got a replay against a non-league team or whatever, you probably are thinking, God. But that's part of the, that's part of the cover. I completely agree with Alison. Mm. And to look at the, what well, the question was about the FA Trophy system, you think... You know, there might be some merit in that because obviously Rochdale would say no to Newcastle. But what the, I don't know, I'm cynical about whether that would be the thin end of the wedge and you sort of, it would just be the first step towards getting rid of, of them all. And also, if a Rochdale turns down a Newcastle, then it's not really going to build a, a great friendship between the two clubs. Or say Liverpool in this, this fixture build-up period had, had pulled out a minnow and they said, no, you're not, you know, Liverpool wouldn't be best pleased. They would have wanted to get over and done with in one game so there's a lot of things to think about there but the mo- most important thing is the game is not about appeasing these, this as we said a small like a handful of elite football clubs the FA Cup is about every team in the country being able to enter and progress to the next round and if they get a replay and they get a second chance to do it that's part of it so absolutely not I think it's keep the replays Keep the replays and keep the power to the to the masses. Rather, <laughs> power to the people. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Tottenham's first game since Harry Kane's hamstring injury saw them taken to a third round replay by Middlesbrough after Ashley Fletcher's strike was cancelled out by Kane's replacement, Lucas Moura, which will see the sides meet again in London. As Martin Hardy writes in the game today, life without Kane proves hard to watch for Mourinho. It is no secret that Mourinho has always favoured the target man. He won the title with Didier Drogba and Diego 
Diego Costa in the role. He brought in Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Romelu Lukaku at Manchester United. So without Kane, his tactics don't exactly seem to fit with the replacements of Moura and Son. They have been successful, we know this, without Kane in the past, once winning eight consecutive games across two seasons when he was unavailable. But Kane's absence is likely to prove a much bigger problem for Mourinho than perhaps it did for Maurizio Pochettino. Should Spurs fans be worried, Alison? Yes, because... I think the best option of a target man is Michelle Vaughan for Spurs. And I don't think he's very good at it. <laughs> they should be worried because this is this is really going to test Mourinho adaptability. You've very neatly summed up his career, Natalie. And you know, he did promise he was a bit more enlightened now and has can't be pigeonholed. I would say a reasonably average manager should be able to get goals out of Son and Mora. Son has always stepped up when Harry Kane has been out of action to the point that when Pochettino was asked questions rather cheekily, he would be asked, actually, Poch, uh, Spurs are more productive when Harry Kane's out the team. He would go quite livid and say, well, that's just an anomaly. It's an anomaly. It doesn't mean anything. Well, it does mean something. It does mean that Son does feel the weight of responsibility and does rise to the challenge when the talisman striker is out. So it's up to Mourinho to be able to replicate that. Son is, if anything, a better player than he was one year ago and two years ago. Forget the little red card blips. He's he's a scintillating player. And you, as the manager, have to be able to look at what he did previously when Kane was out, what the team did previously when Kane was out and make it work because it's the ingredients are there. It's definitely doable. But if we're going to see Mourinho just moan about what he hasn't got and what he wish he had got and this is not what he's used to having, then then they'll 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 be in trouble, I think. Well, it's a hamstring problem, isn't it? And um, they've got some big games coming up in the next six weeks. Liverpool, Manchester City, Chelsea. First leg of their Champions League clash as well with RB Leipzig. It's going to be interesting to see how Jose Mourinho handles that. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty remarkable that Tottenham don't have another recognised first-team striker. Like, it's pretty astonishing, really, when you think about it. I mentioned the other week that Laurenti was kind of... This, the fans would get on his back a little bit or kind of he'd figure a ridicule because he'd never scored any goals, but he was a great kind of backup option um, and they let him go without bringing in anyone else so but like Alison said that you know Pochettino did manage to sort of I think these, their goals per game ratio rose when Kane was out of the team last season uh, and the win percentage was about the same so he but the, the style of play has changed dramatically you know there's Spurs play far far more long balls now and when you don't have Harry Kane that's going to be much much more difficult so He's going to have to find a way to to play uh, that works to Tottenham's strengths a little bit more with Harry Kane out of the team. So it's got to be sawn through the middle and the ball on the floor a little bit more. <laughs> that sounds pretty basic and simple, but I can't really see how it's how it's much different. You're mentioning there about a, a new promised Jose Mourinho that he suggested after he left Manchester United. He was going to be a changed man. 
Is he a change man when he claims that the ball used in Tottenham's one-all draw with Middlesbrough was not up to standard? He said this, I think this ball is a beach ball. It's too light. I don't think it helps the players. But that's not an excuse. (laughs) The £115 match ball is used in all FA Cup fixtures this season. has been designed to manipulate airflow for pinpoint accuracy and superior speed. Does he have a point? Or is this just the worst excuse we've heard from a manager? (laughs) Uh, well, some managers have had actual beach balls as excuses, but um, <laughs> I, I have I have played in matches where they've launched these new balls that have new supersonic this and stitching that does. They're just footballs, aren't they? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> they are just footballs. And yes, the ball is slightly different in the FA Cup. Slightly different. I think it's the same as the football league one, though. So it's it not. Is, it's, like, it's a proper football. It's just slightly yeah. different to the Premier League football. I'll have to say, I, I played a season and a half in the National League, and that was a different football. Awesome. You could tell this was made by a brand which was slightly less recognisable. <laughs> and honestly, it was like when you played in the FA Cup, you thought, "Oh, we've got the real balls back." <laughs> so there is you can you can notice differences. Although I would imagine the player would be better to better placed to point this out than than Josie Mourinho, <laughs> yeah. the manager, who didn't kick it. So, you know, there can be little sort of variations between the footballs, but we're not playing with a beach ball here at all. Stupid question then. Um, Knowing (laughs) this, I don't know if it is stupid or not, but knowing that they're going to have a different ball to play with in the FA Cup, would they have trained? Yeah, Yeah, so they will have been well adapted to this ball. Absolutely. There will have been probably one cross or one shot which the player felt came off slightly weirdly, which can happen anyway. Mm. And he's just focused on maybe yeah. on that yeah. on that probably, but yeah, he's he's. He, he, I don't think he can help it. Sometimes I just think, <laughs> I just think the real ha- Josie's back. He has de- <laughs> he has deflection running through his veins. Yes, this is what he does. classic Mourinho deflection. Then okay, to another cup game then, and one striker costs forty million pounds. The other is 40 years old. Yes, it was the journeyman, Aaron Wilbraham, who clinched a deserved replay for League One Rochdale after club record signing Joe Linton again flopped for Newcastle. And tucking away an equaliser 11 minutes from time, Wilbraham scored for the fourth decade in a row, his first goal having come for Stockport County back in 1998. So that means he is the first player to score in four different decades. Quite incredible. His manager, Brian Barry Murphy, reveals he was playing in the memory of his mother, who sadly passed away at the beginning of December. After the game, his manager gave insight into what managing 40-year-old Wilbraham is like. Amazing. He told me all week he should have been starting. Uh, I know he'd tell me all week I got the team wrong, um, but he's just uh, an inspirational guy and uh, and lost his mum recently to, to a very bad um, illness. So he's, he's still very much playing in our memory and, and doing her honour and he's, he's, uh, he's, an, he's an amazing guy. Just a year difference between Wilbraham and Barry Murphy. Um, Gregor, I understand you played against him. What was he yeah. like to play against? Yeah, um, I'd imagine much the same. He's one of those players who was never the quickest. So it kind of... You know, Terry Sharing would be the easy example to use of someone who didn't rely on pace but was intelligent, good at finding space um, and usually took his chances when they came along. So he was a good player. He was playing for uh, MK Dons at that time when Paul Ince was a manager and they were sort of on the rise from League Two. And he kind of, he's, he's got, he has got better with age. He, he, the best years of his career have come in his 30s. He moved to Norwich and reached the Premier League, Crystal Palace, uh, Bristol City, uh, Bolton and and the Rochdale so 
and you know beforehand he was playing for Stockport County and and MK Don. So um, it's a great story, and and I don't envy him. I mean, there's no way I could be playing at forty years old. No, surely <laughs> you could be. No, I mean. <laughs> I couldn't imagine my body felt like it was 40 when I was 28. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, you must have some good genes as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it is funny when, when when you see his name. I mean, I remember playing for MK Dons and I had to do a yeah. double take of that's Aaron Wilbraham. Yeah. He's still playing. It's an incredible story. Um, is it the best story then of, of the of the weekend's FA Cup action, Alison, do you of think? Of course it is because it's about his mum. I know. It's lovely, isn't it? It's really nice. And he talked about her driving him in a battered, brown fiesta and they could only afford £2.50 in petrol money and when you hear detail like that it makes you realise a lot of players wouldn't be playing if they didn't have a parent who is prepared to just go that little bit further than a lot of parents do it's like in any sport the people who reach the top are not the best in the world they're the ones who had the encouragement from those around them to get them to the places they needed to be in order to win things so he he's acknowledging that if his mum, a single parent, you know, how many single parents with money issues would would say, look, we just can't afford, I can't, I've got the time, I haven't got the mm. energy, we don't have the money for this. But she chose to scrape together what she could to make sure he got to training. I think it's a lovely story. And also he could have been the parent of the, the guy who crossed the ball in for him. He's <laughs> 23 <laughs> years younger, Luke, Mac- Luke Matheson is 17. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. Um, Apparently his teammates call him Peter Pan as well because he just keeps going on his house. So, yeah, that's a great story, yeah. Well, we mentioned 40-year-old Wilbraham and we also mentioned a £40 million striker before the game. Steve Bruce had spoken of the heavy load placed on Joe Linton wearing the Newcastle number nine shirt. Martin Hardy in the game today says this. The Brazilian looked as though he was carrying three sacks of coal as he trooped back to the away dressing room. Having been outshone by the 40-year-old Aaron Wilbraham and experienced the Newcastle support turning against him for the first time, his name had been called out for a random drug test. When he arrived in the summer for a club record fee of £40 million, no one said there would be days like Saturday for a striker who has scored one goal in 22 games. Can we really put his form down to the weight of the shirt? Is there really such a thing as that, the pressure of a shirt? I think there can be, but I don't think it's true in this case. I think... He's arriving in a in a new country, in a new league. Um, but most of all, he's playing for Newcastle. You know, I think back to the game against Spurs when he scored his only goal and he led the line really well on his own. But it was a thankless task and it often is playing for this Newcastle team. And even those around him, he's got Almiron and Sam Maximan often, although he's injured. Um, and no Matt Ritchie, who's the guy who's throwing the crosses in the box. I think he's just, he returned... Uh, this weekend but he's been out for a long time so it's been tough it's tough to play tough to be the the lone centre forward in, in that team and you know Rondon did it really well last year but he was always banging headers in from a Matt Ritchie cross and there's not there's not really been any service for him this year so I have a little bit of sympathy for him I think anyone would find it hard in, in Newcastle's team at the moment I mean Alison we, we've talked previously about the the weight of expectation when a striker comes in for a big amount of money, can you understand that? Can can players actually feel that pressure? Of course they can, but it is more about adapting to new environment. Any, I think most interviews with players who come from abroad when they're already established or or 
already thought of as as very promising indeed come to the Premier League and they they come knowing in theory about it and they love the idea about the way the, the grounds are geographically built and the intimacy and the passion and the pace and they hear about all this but I think playing in it is quite different it isn't really like anywhere else they'll say and some players just have that innate ability to adapt within weeks or a few months they just have that ability to just morph into it chameleon like they, kn they know how to do that but some players who are very technical perhaps or have been brought up ingrained in a particular style with a particular type of coaching and style of play they there's too much for them to process too many changes and differences for them to process and once you intellectually acknowledge there's a lot to process I think that can paralyze you as a player because playing football is all about uh, freedom of expression you're not supposed to think while you're playing you go into the zone of, of knowing what you're doing without knowing you can you're doing it. You make a run, not because you calculate it knowingly, you just instinctively know and you know what your teammates are capable of and it gels beautifully. That's what's supposed to happen. But if you're, if you're stood there and you're aware that this still feels alien to you and the noises are alien and the instructions you've been given are still feeling a little alien and you haven't clicked early, so you, you're feeling self-conscious probably... It, do, it doesn't matter how gifted you are as a player or how many goals you scored in another league in another country. It, it'll, be, it'll feel, I'm sure it'll feel like starting from scratch. And as soon as you have self-doubt in any realm of life, you're not going to be very good at what you do. So it is, it is hard. If, and now he's heard the boos. I mean, that's going to set him back another few months, isn't it? Mm, I don't think it helps either that he's... You know, Rafa, I think Rafa Benitez turned down the chance to sign him. He didn't want to sign him. So he's almost a symbol of Rafa's departure, the the ownership and the sort of acrimony that the supporters feel towards that. He's almost the symbol of it. And well they you know, there was a lot of good goodwill. They wanted to oof, we're spending forty million on a centre forward. This is good news. But still the longer it goes on he kind of becomes a symbol of what they left behind and what they've got now. And the sort of their their dis distaste of the of the owners, so I do feel for him. But I think, the, as I said, the 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 most important thing is he's playing in a team which is not set up to score many goals. Centre four, uh, centre halves are scoring a lot from from corners, but they're not really sort of a coherent attacking unit at all. Does that mean that the future doesn't bode bode very well for him? I think he needs. You know, there's not even really anyone else to put in, and for him to have a a little breakout of the team either, that's the other thing for him. So I think it also. Depends on how the two players around them do because the front three is a, that that front three, none of them have really settled very well yet. So I think it kind of he needs better service as well. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guest today, Alison Rudd. Remember, you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search the Times subscription for more information, and we'll be back on Thursday.
The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.